the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing Clark Hilton engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Dean Cheng. He is the senior research fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy on how China might exploit the Afghanistan debacle as it is unfolding. They've already started, but we'll talk about some of the things to consider. We'll also hear an interview with David Riffle. He's the author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. And then we'll talk about how to pray for Afghans as the situation there has escalated. Well, you've probably heard by now that there was um, there were two explosions, the second at a nearby Barron Hotel after the suicide bomb attack that uh, took the lives of 13 U.S. service members, Marines and um, uh, soldiers, as well as some 60 Afghans, um, injured at least a dozen more U.S. Uh, personnel as well. U.S. officials said making it the deadliest day for the U.S. troops in 10 years, 10 years. Officials say that those killed included at least 11 Marines and a Navy corpsman. Meanwhile, the Pentagon said that more than a dozen others had been injured in that attack. Well, the suicide bomb attack was followed up by a firefight by Islamic State gunmen at the gate. This is at the airport where the night before there had been 5,000 Afghans and potentially some Americans seeking access to the airport in order to flee. Crowds had gathered for days seeking to escape the country, and there had been multiple warnings of a terror threat in the area. In fact, U.S. personnel were told to leave the airport immediately. There was a danger, particularly from the Islamic State. Well, the Pentagon confirmed the initial explosion, as well as a second attack at the Barron Hotel, where Americans had gathered in the past for Rescue and evacuation. Marine Corps General Kenneth McKenzie Jr. said two suicide bombers were uh, assessed to be the ISIS fighters. Uh, The threat from ISIS is extremely real, he said. We believe it is uh, their desire to continue those attacks and we expect those attacks to continue. And we're doing everything we can to prepare for those attacks, end quote. Meanwhile, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he issued a statement on the attack saying, on behalf of the men and women of the Department of Defense, I express deepest condolences to the loved ones and teammates of all those killed and wounded in Kabul today. Terrorists took their lives at the very moment those troops were trying to save the lives of others. We mourn their loss. We will treat their wounds and we will support their families in what will most assuredly be a devastating grief. But we will not be dissuaded from the task at hand. More than five hours after the attack, the president had not yet issued a statement about the attack. He spoke later in the day. We'll comment on that in just a moment, let you know what the president said. 
Meanwhile, we learn that U.S. military officials said the United States will continue to coordinate with the Taliban in providing safe passage to the airport in Kabul, where suicide bombers carried out an attack that killed the 13 U.S. service members injured 15 others and killed some 60-plus Afghans. Well, the Marine Corps General Kenneth McKenzie Jr., commander of the U.S. Central Command, said during a press briefing that the evacuation effort um, at the Harmid Karzai, uh, Karzai International Airport will continue and that the U.S. military had been sharing information with the Taliban to help prevent such attacks. Now, this was rather Shocking. The U.S. is sharing intelligence in that they provided to the Taliban the names of U.S. personnel, individuals in the country entitled to leave the country, as well as the name names rather of Afghans who had helped the United States, who were also entitled to leave the country, according to the United States calculations. Now, the concern is that was a hit list provided to the Taliban that can be exploited once the United States leaves On the 31st of August, again, the uh, general went on to say we share versions of this information with the Taliban so that they can actually do some searching out there for us. And we believe that some attacks have been thwarted by them. We cut down the information we give the Taliban. They don't get the full range of information that we have, but we give them enough to act uh, time and space uh, to try to prevent these attacks. Well, McKenzie said he expected such attacks to continue and that the U.S. military is doing everything it can to be prepared uh, in the future. Meanwhile, during an address to the nation this evening, the president vowed to hunt down the terrorists behind the bombings at the Kabul airport and said the U.S. military will continue to evacuate American citizens and allies despite the disruption. The president spoke hours after two bombs were detonated outside the Hamid Karzai airport in Kabul, killing at least 13 U.S. Marines and at least 60 Afghans. One suicide bomber detonated an improvised explosive device at the airport's central Abbey Gate, while a second bomber detonated his device outside the Baron Hotel near the airport's perimeter. ISIS-K, which is an Iranian offshoot of the Islamic State, claimed responsibility for the attacks, confirming the uh, Pentagon's assessment. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay, the president said, addressing the terrorists. With regard to finding and tracking down the ISIS leaders who ordered this, we have some reason to believe we know who they are, not certain, and we will find ways of our choosing without large military operations to get them wherever they are. And that might have been tipping one's hand a bit much. But the president said the U.S. military would retaliate against the responsible parties at our time. He went on to say, I've also ordered my commanders to develop operational plans to strike ISIS-K assets, leadership and facilities. We will respond with force and precision at our time, he said. Evacuation flights have continued to take off from the airport, according to the Pentagon. But it remains unclear whether any would-be evacuees are able to make it through the surrounding gates to access the airfield. Meanwhile, the State Department has revealed the number of Americans left to be evacuated. The congressional staff uh, was told that 4,100 U.S. citizens remain in Afghanistan and wish to be evacuated, multiple outlets reported. Not all of those Americans in and around Kabul, the capital of the nation, where the, the uh, airport is situated, 
Uh, the Senate uh, was told as part of the U.S. airlift mission, 4,400 Americans successfully traveled to the Kabul airport to secure transport on a rescue military or commercial jet. The outstanding 4,100 people, some of whom may be trapped in the country's interior, may struggle to bypass Taliban checkpoints, will prove more difficult for the military to facilitate, according to the source. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up uh, in our, well, final segment this hour, we'll talk with Dean Cheng. He is the Senior Research Fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the, D- the uh, Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. You know you're important when you're title is that long. Anyway, we're going to talk about how China might exploit the Afghan uh, debacle that's unfolding there. Also in the five o'clock hour, we'll hear from David Riffle, author of Mentoring uh, Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. And some final thoughts on how to pray for Afghans, believers and non-believers. Well, when the president addressed the American people on the on Afghanistan on the withdrawal last Friday, Niall Gardner, who is a Brit, says we were witnessing the death spiral of one of the most calamitous U.S. administrations of modern times. This presidency is sinking faster than the Titanic, increasing friendly, um, uh, friendless, increasingly friendless on the world stage and looking like easy prey to America's enemies from Beijing to Moscow. He appeared uh, confused, angry, incoherent, and clueless, he um, goes on to say. Well, the point is, he says for Brits, of which he is one, the Afghan debacle is a betrayal. Not only was he defiant as he took questions from the media, he was also spreading the kind of disinformation that's unworthy of an American president. For example, he declared that America's allies were not questioning the credibility of the U.S. over the Afghanistan debacle and fully supported the decision to withdraw. This is a flat-out lie. Instead, a deep-seated criticism of the uh, Biden strategy has spread across Europe, and we've heard and seen, or at least had the opportunity opportunity to uh, what they're saying. Well, some of the harshest words for the administration have come from Berlin, where Armin Laschet, uh, who has replaced Angela Merkel as the leader of Germany's ruling Christian Democratic Union, referred to the American withdrawals as the biggest debacle that NATO has suffered since its founding. Well, the president clearly living in the twilight zone, um, uh, Niall Gardner goes on to say, if he thinks the U.S. allies from London to Warsaw are not openly questioning his administration's credibility on the international stage. This is a bitter, defiant and delusional president who will not accept reality. Well, he goes on from there, raising some questions about the future of NATO and certainly the future credibility of the United States. Well, in other news, um, we're pleading for your help. That's what Oregon frontline workers are saying. Grim realities. They're begging for Oregonians to be vaccinated. All for Oregon, which is the four healthcare organizations responsible for the mass vaccination site at the Oregon Convention Center that administered some 550,000 doses, held a press conference that didn't mince words. If Oregonians do not take immediate action, our healthcare system will become overwhelmed as they are in danger of doing now. Well, the spread of the uh, Delta variant is unprecedented, they tell us. We again join forces as all for Oregon, and we plead with you and our communities that Delta is different 
It's creating a health crisis around our state, the chief medical officer at Legacy Health, Seth Podolsky, said. This surge is both disheartening and preventable, he went on. Well, this week we set a record for statewide hospitalizations, and this is not a record we want to be setting. Well, the Delta variant is different, according to health officials. They're seeing patients who are presenting sicker, they're younger, and there are more deaths among people who have fewer comorbidities. The Delta variant's viral load is up to 100 times, or excuse me, 1,000 times greater than the first strain of COVID-19 we saw in the state. This means that a person with the first strain of COVID-19 passed the virus on to an average of one to two people. Someone with the Delta variant is spreading the virus to five to eight people on average. Again, quoting, uh, from uh, Podofsky, people most impacted by this are unvaccinated. With Delta, we're seeing an increased breakthrough infections. And while the uh, vaccine generally protects against hospitalization or death, it's not a guarantee. Let us not forget our children, kids under 12, not eligible to get the vaccine. Don't we all have a responsibility to protect them? End quote. Well, beyond that, Oregon is facing what Surgeon Mary Griswold called a perfect storm. The storm's elements include sicker patients who have delayed care due to the pandemic, the COVID surge, and the fact that Oregon has fewer beds per 1,000 people than most states. Well, health officials at all four hospitals detailed stories of patients waiting for intensive care unit beds that simply are not there, waiting for people to be moved to a lower level to a lower level of care so others can be moved into their place. They express that people are being seen in lobbies and not being able to wait for rides home in their rooms because there's not room to wait. Well, two registered nurses spoke at the news conference to convey the grim realities of working in overwhelmed hospitals. They both expressed that they're exhausted. They're seeing how the virus takes a personal toll on health care workers. I won't go into detail, but some of the details that were shared during that press conference were grim indeed. Meanwhile, um, up to 80,000 unemployed Oregonians face aid cutoff after Labor Day. Leah Murray, she worked for several years on her own, freelancing as a web designer, drumming up new business at networking events and other in-person gatherings. Well, that work and the prospect of new contacts both evaporated when the pandemic hit. So like tens of thousands of other self-employed Oregonians, she started collecting jobless benefits through a new program Congress established for contractors and gig workers in March of last year. Well, those pandemic unemployment assistance benefits currently $424 a week supplemented the income her husband earns as a computer programmer, helped the couple manage their bills through an economic catastrophe. If it wasn't for PUA, there would probably have been a lot of disastrous situations. I have no idea where we would be, she says. Well, the program for self-employed workers expires after Labor Day, along with other federal programs that have provided $6.4 billion of the $10.7 billion in jobless benefits Oregonians received since the pandemic hit in March of last year. As many as 80,000 Oregonians will lose benefits when those programs expire on the 4th of September, up two-thirds of all those receiving unemployment assistance. Uh, while many Oregonians have shaken off the economic shock of COVID-19, many are still reeling. Murray said she depends on her benefits and can't see how she'll make ends meet after the last payment comes. We're at a time when self-employed individuals like her are struggling, but the vast majority who were 
employed by others have simply elected not to pursue employment up to this point. So we'll keep our eyes on what happens again, September 4th. Those benefits will dry up. Well, in other news, uh, Afghanistan chaos has Americans and allies praying and pleading for a way out as the deadline nears. Chaos, confusion and terror have marked the uh, a withdrawal over the past week with Americans and Afghan allies pleading for help to escape the Taliban controlled Kabul and uncertainty at the uh, city's U.S. held airport. In other developments, Representative Adam Schiff on the Afghan crisis says this looks like a military planning failure. Speaker Pelosi warns against lawmakers uh, who took a trip to Afghanistan, one Republican, one Democrat, saying it unnecessarily diverted needed resources. Senator Rubio calls the Biden at Biden Afghanistan crisis among the worst catastrophes in foreign policy history. And Sean Hannity declares that President Biden just signed the death certificate of every Afghan who helped the U.S. over the last 20 years. A U.S. reporter says history will judge this moment as a very dark period. Well, the Supreme Court has reinstated uh, former President Trump's remain in Mexico policy. They refused to block a court order requiring the administration to reinstate the Trump era immigration move known as the remain in Mexico policy. The policy implemented by former President Donald Trump requires asylum seekers at the southern border to stay in Mexico while they await hearings in U.S. courtrooms to determine their eligibility and status. Three of the court's more liberal justices, Kagan, Sotomayor and Breyer, uh, would have accepted the application for a stay. The Department of Homeland Security released a statement criticizing the ruling, saying the Department of Homeland Security respectfully disagrees with the district court's decision and regrets that the Supreme Court declined to issue a stay. The statement said DHS has appealed the district court's order and will continue to vigorously challenge it. As the appeal process continues, however, DHS will comply with the order in good faith. Alongside interagency partners, DHS has begun to engage with the government of Mexico in diplomatic discussions surrounding the migrant protection protocols. Meanwhile, the Arizona attorney general has warned of a potential border threat from terrorists freed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. And a phony border patrol vehicle was stopped in Arizona, foiling a human smuggling attempt, according to U.S. authorities. A top New York ICE official has spoken out after resigning. Biden is endangering the public, he now says. And the Biden administration quickly processed migrants at the border, but... Can't do the same with trapped Afghan interpreters. Well, Dr. Fauci is calling on unvaccinated Americans to expedite the end of the pandemic. The government's leading infectious diseases expert during a White House briefing on Tuesday appealed to eligible unvaccinated Americans to roll up their sleeves, receive the shots and accelerate the timeline to the end of the pandemic. Data compiled by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention indicates 60.3% of Americans age 12 and older or all those eligible for vaccines are fully vaccinated with 71.1% receiving at least one dose. Dr. Walensky, CDC director, noted that the seven-day average of new daily cases and deaths are increasing with about 137,000 new cases every day. Meanwhile, Oregon's Governor Brown announced a statewide outdoor mask mandate regardless of vaccination status that is official tomorrow. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Dean Cheng. He is the Senior Research Fellow at the Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We'll talk about China and the role it's likely to play in Afghanistan moving forward. Well, Tennessee flooding brought to heroism as well as tragedy. The U.S. Border Patrol nabbed 42 Haitians arriving in Florida in an alleged smuggling operation. And House Democrats passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. A progressive liberal appears uh, to have forgotten to disclose a key financial detail that could spell trouble. And a Yakuza boss is the first to be sentenced to death in Japan. Well, TikTok plans to let users shop through an app with their um, Shopify deal. The U.S. is going to restart oil leasing with offshore auctions this year. And California residents are looking to escape the high cost of living. Good luck with that. Disney is shuttering several stores in their ongoing retail shift as well. Well, I mentioned earlier that two congressmen traveled to Kabul in secret, upsetting the speaker. From the story, Representative Seth Moulton, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Peter Majeur, a Republican from Michigan, left for Afghanistan to conduct oversight on the executive branch as the Biden administration works to evacuate thousands in the wake of the Taliban takeover. It's not clear if they were there at the time of the explosions earlier today. Well, details on the trip of uh, in this uh, thread by The Washington Post, Josh Rogan, including included rather this. They changed their minds on extending the August 31st deadline. After talking with commanders on the ground and seeing the situation here, it is obvious that because we started the evacuate evacuation so late that no matter what we do, we won't get everyone out on time, even by September 11th. End quote. Meanwhile, Jen Psaki brags that uh, there are uh, they're on track for the largest airlift in U.S. history as she urges um, rather argues the disaster is a success. Meanwhile, from Mike Pompeo, the president should commit to staying in Afghanistan until every American is uh, rescued from behind the enemy lines of the Taliban. And that withdrawal should occur on our terms and not theirs. A USA Today poll shows Biden's approval rating has sunk to 41 percent and California is deteriorating under its current leadership. Kevin Williamson points out that Elder is a formidable communicator and a man of genuine intelligence. But the fact that an AM radio chatterbox is managed in the um, breaks between the doggy vitamin commercial to get within striking distance of supplanting a sitting Democratic governor is less a recognition of his considerable gifts than it is an indictment on Gavin Newsom's sundry grotesqueries, as he writes it. Well, Oregon Governor Brown announced a mask requirement for outdoor outdoors, rather, regardless of vaccine status. And Fox News is well out front again uh, in cable news, more than CNN and MSNBC combined. Herschel Walker, the former football player, is uh, running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, would take on Democrat to Raphael Warnock. Moms with youngsters increased their drinking 323 percent during the pandemic and the trend held for an entire year. A border uh, patrol agents arrested 8,700 criminal aliens in 10 months, despite their thin ranks. And from the U.S. intelligence community, sorry, COVID origin remains a mystery. Two U.S. diplomats will be uh, evacuated from Vietnam after Havana syndrome incidents uh, occurred. 
And disgraced Andrew Cuomo has been stripped of his Emmy, the Emmy he should never have received. In the annals of social justice caliphate, Apple employees are turning on their own woke company and an unbearably cringeworthy BLM video is being shown to all incoming Air Force Academy cadets. Well, Texas Governor Greg Abbott reasserts his ban on vaccine mandates as a judge rules against the mask mandate ban. The same day that Texas Governor Greg Abbott reissued his ban on vaccine mandates and passports, a judge ruled against his ban on mask mandates, issuing a temporary injunction, according to a report. In other developments, Arkansas has run out of intensive care beds for COVID patients, calling the situation critical. And a woman was carried by the police while seated from a Texas school board meeting for refusing to wear a mask, according to the district. Tucker Carlson suggests leaders need to explain their COVID mandates rather than just offer edicts and telling us to obey. Vice President Harris and Governor Newsom required uh, rally goers get vaccinated or produce a negative test despite staying in their cars. Apparently they were breathing really heavily. A Florida tourist was shot dead while protecting his baby at a restaurant. The suspect has been arrested. This young father died after a gunman walked into a Miami Beach restaurant, pointed a gun at the father's one-year-old son. Dustin Wakefield, a 21-year-old father, had been on vacation from Castle Rock, Colorado with his family. They were eating at a restaurant around 6.30 p.m. Wednesday when the suspect walked through the door. The guy came in with a gun, waving it, saying it's time to die. He pointed the gun at the uh, the young boy, uh, saying he's only a boy, the father. Uh, the victim's uncle told the Miami Herald, who was present at the time, the uncle, not the Miami Herald. Well, Dustin stood up between the gunman and the baby, and the gunman shot the, the father. He shot him multiple times on the ground. Well, in a short video taken immediately after the shooting and obtained by local media, the gunman later identified um, can be seen dancing while people are uh, heard screaming. The gunman then walks up uh, some steps with his weapon in his hands. Again, he is in custody. Well, a man gets six years in prison in a Michigan governor kidnap plot. Larry Kudlow says the U.S. has caved into Taliban terrorists and a Florida kite surfer, 61, is dead after slamming into the wall of a beachside home. A California fire advances toward Lake Tahoe after destroying hundreds of homes there. Toshiba is in talks with four investment firms for strategic ideas, and the Taliban wants to help fight climate change and terrorism despite links to executions and oppression. Apparently, virtue signaling. The CDC and USDA are investigating two salmonella outbreaks linked to Italian-style meats. Well, the U.S. State Department warned U.S. citizens to avoid traveling to the Kabul airport. We now know why. A top U.S. diplomat says we warned U.S. and Afghan citizens, but they didn't want to leave, blaming the victims for their own uh, trap uh, entrapment. Ross Wilson uh, told CBS Norrin O'Donnell people chose not to leave. Guy Benson said it's their fault. You see, they believed the president of the United States when he said the Taliban wouldn't overrun the country and the secretary of state said the embassy would remain fully operational, both of which happened a few weeks ago. Marco Rubio also weighed in saying the State Department admits 4,100 Americans remain in Kabul alone, but claim that some of them are deciding not to leave. 
This is a lie. Taliban isn't allowing American women through their checkpoints without a male guardian and are blocking non-citizen family members of U.S. citizens. Meanwhile, Blinken claims that fewer than 1,000 Americans remain stranded. That has since been debunked. President Biden jokes about Americans stranded in Kabul. His staff cut his mic before he responded to the question, but it didn't stop the president from continuing his response. From the NBC News chief White House correspondent Peter Alexander, I asked President Biden what he will do if Americans are still in Afghanistan after 831 deadline. His response, you'll be the first person I call. Then he took no questions. Eric Erickson weighed in saying Biden probably thinks Republicans won't take won't make a stink if citizens come home and legal resident refugees are left behind. On this day in history, 1883, the island volcano of Krakatoa begins cataclysmic eruptions, leading to a massive explosion the following day. 1910, Thomas Edison demonstrates uh, for reporters an improved version of his um, kinetophone, a device for showing movies with synchronized sound. 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing women's right to vote is certified in effect by Secretary of State Brainbridge Colby. 1957, the Soviet Union announced, announces rather that it had successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. 1968, the Democratic National Convention opens in Chicago, the four-day event that results in the nomination of Herbert H. Humphrey, for president, is marked by a bloody police a crackdown on anti-war protesters in the streets. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Dean Cheng. He's the senior research fellow. We'll talk about how China might exploit the Afghanistan debacle as it continues to unfold. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, we've been watching the events unfurl in Afghanistan, and I think most of us are overwhelmed by what we're seeing. But there are some questions that loom that relate to other countries that might benefit from what uh, what's going on there. And my next guest, Dean Cheng, he asked the question, how might China exploit Afghanistan and the debacle that's going on there? He joins us now as senior research fellow of the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation to talk about just that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you wrote, uh, I thought, a very intriguing piece on the question of China and whether or not it's going to exploit the situation in Afghanistan. I think for most of us, we've thought about uh, the minerals and earth um, benefits that you find there. But there are other questions that need to be considered as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, my apologies about the talk. <laughs> um, no, uh, Afghanistan, of course, is not simply about uh, the U.S. and the situation there. Um, China is a neighbor. Uh, China has been described as uh, looking forward to taking advantage of all this. But too often it seems to be portrayed as China will move into Afghanistan, which watching the scenes of what's coming out of Kabul, you have to wonder why the Chinese would want to stick mm-hmm. themselves in the middle of that in the first place. Well, that's a very good question. They're, they're not as concerned about the human rights violations as much of the rest of the world is, but there are reasons why they would, in fact, stick their nose in the middle of this. Again, referencing the column that you wrote just recently, you point out that one of the regularly asked questions is whether Beijing will feel emboldened to invade Taiwan 
either because the U.S. is preoccupied with evacuating Americans from Afghanistan or because the U.S. military's vaunted reputation has taken a beating. Uh, That certainly is the case. But how do you respond and what do you think the Chinese are thinking about? They've made some statements about Taiwan of late. Is it likely that they would exploit this situation to move forward in that area? I think that they are absolutely going to exploit it politically. Um, What we have already seen from Beijing, and they are proving remarkably flexible Mm -hmm. and just very agile, is to send uh, media messages, diplomatic messages to Taipei and other countries in the region of the Western Pacific saying, you think America is going to save you after they fail to save Afghanistan? But as we're watching in Afghanistan, military operations in the face of an adversary's uh, concerted opposition is very hard. Launching an amphibious invasion is one of the hardest things in the world. So I think, ironically enough, I think the Chinese may have been caught by surprise at our bumbling in Afghanistan. And I doubt very much that they are postured to go immediately right now to try and take the island. Um, That being said, I think the Chinese are reassessing the balance of military power in the Western Pacific, which may have implications for other places like, say, the South China Sea, um, where shows a force against other U.S. friends and allies. Another question you reference in your piece is whether China will want to step into Afghanistan to forestall a political vacuum or to halt the potential for the Taliban to support Uyghur separatists in China. Is that a real concern that the Taliban might might support Uyghur separatists that China is abusing? Uh, What are your thoughts uh, as to that question? Well, I think one of the fascinating problems for the Chinese is that while they have been suppressing the Uyghurs, jailing up to a million of them in what they, Orwellian terminology is re-education camps, um, the reality is that there have been some Uyghurs um, in ISIS. Uh, they fought in Syria against uh, us and our friends and allies there. So the fear is, I think, that um, you could wind up with radicalized Uyghurs uh, taking on Chinese security forces. And certainly the Chinese have alienated their Uyghur population. But the Taliban... Um, is supported heavily by Pakistan, which is a firm Chinese partner. And I think that this is one of the great ironies here is that we never were able to seal off Afghanistan from the Pakistanis. But the Pakistanis who understand that alienating China leaves them very vulnerable are most likely going to actually uh, wind up pressuring the Taliban to not antagonize Beijing. Mm. You uh, quote uh, the Pakistani leaders who described China as their all weather friend compared to the United States, which is described as their fair weather friend. It's a rather interesting um, thought, uh, the relationship between the Chinese, the Pakistanis, as well as the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and their embrace of China, despite uh, the fact that Muslims in the in China have been abused. Can you explain a little bit of that, uh, those relationships? Well, I think that the relationship is actually very straightforward. It's money. Uh, 
China is investing in Central Asia, which has uh, predominantly Islamic um, populations. It is the world's largest importer of oil, uh, which makes them distinctly friendly towards uh, Saudi Arabia um, and also Iran. Uh, And in fact, uh, China is one of Iran's largest um, oil customers. So all of these countries basically see it in their financial best interest not to antagonize Beijing. And if that means turning a blind eye to the Uyghurs, uh, they've clearly decided that that's acceptable. The same applies to places like Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, which, again, are heavily Muslim, um, because, again, China is their largest trading partner. So whereas the United States has um, fought to try and protect Muslim populations in places like uh, Bosnia, um, you know, the Chinese get a free ride because they're bigger economic partners. As the United States is receding on the world stage, does that also contribute to the Pakistanis and others focusing their attention on China? Or would that be the case whether or not the United States had fumbled this most latest uh, foray into Afghanistan? Well, Pakistan has long been friendly towards China, in part because both of them also have problems with India. Um, But uh, certainly we have delivered on a platter a justification by Beijing to say, look, you should trust me, but also for other countries to look at the situation and say, do I want to back or be backed by the United States? You know, Osama bin Laden's phrase that, you know, was America the stronger horse? Uh, India viewed Afghanistan as a key part of its uh, security, in part because um, of Pakistan's situation there. Now that Afghanistan is, is going to even be more firmly in Pakistan's pocket, India, which we have been courting uh, for much of the last 15 years Mm -hmm. as part of the Quad, is now going to also be thinking, do I really want to remain partnered with the United States? Mm. One final question you address in your column is whether China would want to exploit the mineral resources of Afghanistan. And you point out that they have mineral resources around the globe. Your thoughts on whether or not that is a primary motivation or likely to be a primary exploitation by the People's Republic of China? I think in the long term, the PRC is certainly going to keep an eye on Afghanistan's mineral resources. But again, um, if it means you know making itself vulnerable to the Taliban and Islamic fundamentalists in general, why should it when it can already obtain most of those resources elsewhere? I think there's this fantasy on the part of many American thinkers that China's just going to stumble into Afghanistan and find itself mired as badly as we have in the last 20 years and maybe turn out as badly. Hoping the other side screws up is, you know, a wonderful way to make yourself feel better, but it's an awful strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You point out that what China gains in light of the catastrophic American failure in Afghanistan is a wonderful opportunity to highlight American unreliability and fecklessness. And you point out that what's even more problematic is that these same questions are undoubtedly being asked unbidden in capitals around the world, even if Beijing weren't pressing the issue. And that's kind of a sad uh, fallout of what we're witnessing today. Absolutely. I mean, on a day when we have suffered more casualties in one day than since 2011, um, the message is unfortunately going to be heard everywhere um, that the U.S. is a hapless giant. Um, And, uh, you know, it's going to take a long time for us to get ourselves out of this hole. Yeah, if we ever do. Dean Cheng, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you again for having me. Really appreciate it.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Once again, that was Dean Chang. He's Senior Research Fellow in Asian, at the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back after news and traffic. When we return, we'll hear from David Riffle, author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in his latest book points out that throughout life's journey, everyone has moments when the past affects the present. We all know what that's about. We come to a crossroads where the past has to be faced, and we know on some level our lives require God's healing. Well, these junctures usually fall under one of three categories, believing our best is behind us, believing we missed our best through bad decisions, or believing the hurts caused by others or ourselves are insurmountable to live our best life in God. Well, his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past invites you to see healing. It's not only possible, but that it can be yours for um, for time and eternity. Well, Kevin Goose is my guest. He served in ministry since 1991. His deep conviction is that anyone can discover all of God's potential for their life. In addition to pastoring, Kevin has done leadership development, been a life coach to young fathers, a director of hospice, and a high school soccer coach. He's been married to Beth since 1989. They have four children, five grandchildren, um, two sons-in-law, and a daughter-in-law. He joins us today to talk about uh, his book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. You know, this is a season in which many of us, although not all, have more time to really think about uh, things that we might not um, be able to or, or were able to avoid during times when we were more active outside of our homes. So this is a very timely subject, um, dry bones, redeeming your past. And so let's begin by uh, drawing attention to the reference that dry bones uh, makes from Scripture. This is a reference to Ezekiel. Can you explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the story uh, what these dry bones represent? Yes, the, the dry bones in Ezekiel represents when uh, the Lord shows Ezekiel the nation of Israel and basically beyond hope. And as he shows him the vision of these dry bones, he asks him, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel, he answers wisely. He says, Lord, um, you know, and then God begins to show him how what was dead could be alive again. And so the reference for us in the book is that there are times in our lives, it just happened in my own story, but I know in many others, where we look at, so to speak, things in shambles, and God says, can I do something with this? And really all we know to say is, well, Lord, you know, meaning we sure hope so, but we're not sure. But God has a way of letting us know that, yes, he can rebuild what was broken, and he can make alive what was dead. You know, I think oftentimes when we read in Scripture a reference like that you've just mentioned from Ezekiel 37, it's easier for us to imagine that that could happen than that our past, our history, the thing we look back on with regret, um, can be reconciled, redeemed, and we can move forward in hope. Why do you think it's so challenging for us to uh, to imagine that we, too, can find uh, redemption, that we can find uh, that our past is redeemed. There are a couple of things I think really are, are pivotal, Matt. One, I find that for many of us and for many people, forgiving themselves is sometimes harder than forgiving others because we, we replay 
thoughts, attitudes, actions, behaviors that we're like, how could I have done that? Or why did this happen? And so I think this forgiving of self, it's almost like we, we practically have a hard time believing that God is greater than what we've done, which ties into the second is, is that we don't make the shift from shame to regret. You know, shame like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve confronted with their sin, they run from God and hide. Mm-hmm. Where, where repentance is where we run to God and say, Lord, you're our only hope. And I think that for some people, whether it's not forgiving themselves or getting stuck in a place of shame, they have a hard time seeing a way forward. It seems to me that's a ripe territory for the enemy who wants to exploit our inability to fully experience the forgiveness, the redemption, and the healing that God has in store for us and can literally wreck our lives based on a past experience that we may have repented of and moved on from. Uh, So it's really important, this book, Redeeming Your Past, getting us to a place where we not only accept what God has given us, um, that we are able to move forward without shame, as you've described. Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's this it's the sense that the enemy lies to us when, when he tempts us, somehow believing that God is holding out on us, right? Temptation at its core is, I'm questioning God's character, his commands, but then if I give in to temptation and sin, then he just kicks us when we're down and tries to make us believe we're unlovable, unforgivable. And so your point is, is so right that this moving past that shame and then seeing that God can do something um, is so key. How personal is this book um, to you? It's very personal. You know, I had been in ministry at when, when really I hit bottom. I'd been in ministry about 25 years, uh, had been married about 27 years, and I was the poster child for burnout. Uh, I was just a hard driver who just on some level believed if I pushed harder, I could escape what were those either hurts from the past or even the disappointments in the present. And I became very bitter and very blinded. And unfortunately, there came a point where I crossed some ethical and moral boundaries that required me to step back from from ministry and walk through restoration. Um, I had broken my covenant with God, with my wife. I had, you know, brought hurt to other people, my children, family, and really had brought shame to the name of Jesus Christ. And so personally, I had to walk this journey when Ezekiel, although he hadn't been wrong, but in comparing to drive, I did the ash heap. Um, he was like, Lord, I don't even see a way forward. But God revealed himself in a powerful way. And so this book comes out of uh, God healing me and my family from a broken place that many would have thought wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So this is uh, definitely a hopeful book. What are some of the lessons that you learned on your journey to uh, to healing? You know, there there are kind of a few that really stand out to me as pivotal, and and that is that God can see us through the lens of forgiveness and give that forgiveness, but that I have to be patient for the journey of other people to see my heart and my life. Mm. It's it's kind of like I want. God sees my heart, and so he knows my intentions, but other people can only see actions. And so I think a first principle was I couldn't be frustrated or put demands or deadlines on people for their journey to not just forgive, but also to trust. And that was pivotal because the deeper the relationship, sometimes the longer the journey. And so it was important for me to learn to rest in my identity in God, even though he was very clear to me that the journey of healing with people is different. 
And just because they have a journey doesn't mean that they're doing something wrong. But that was a first key lesson. Mm, mm. Yeah, and that can be very, uh, very challenging. Now, what advice do you give to someone who feels that they have made such horrific a mess of their life? They've made such serious mistakes that there's really no hope for a better future. I mean, you've already given us a glimpse into your own story and that journey of healing and restoration. But what do you say to the one who says, well, but, you know, my situation is is beyond the pale? You, you know, first is that even though it's hard for us to to come to grips with what we're feeling, there's a couple key principles. It's good to acknowledge what we're feeling, but I, I heard a pastor say once, my feelings are real, but they may not always be right. And in that, there has to come a place where I would say to somebody that we have to make a decision, even if our emotions have to come along in time, where the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is greater in my life than what I've done wrong. Uh, And so there's a place of saying, Lord, even my failures can't be bigger than you. And then second in that, I believe there's a hope in Scripture that because God doesn't hide from us the broken people that he had to redeem and restore. I mean, many people, if we were God's HR department, we, we may not have hired Moses you know, or David, we would have said that, that, that Peter was there. We would have said, what do you mean Rahab or Ruth? But God has this amazing way to say, look, you see what that, that's broken? That person is ready for me to be their everything. And now I can assure them we even have great saints of the scripture, but we have to be mindful. They began as broken people that God had to redeem. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to take a hopeful look of how to redeem our past from that status of dry bones. Again, my guest this afternoon is Kevin Goose, uh, and his book is titled Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Kevin Goose, who is the author of Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. Now, you break down three ways in which we look at our past, uh, coming to the conclusion that uh, we are beyond hope. Can you describe for us these three ways in which we tend to look back and uh, imagine that there is no uh, hope for redemption? Yes. The first is the glory days. And that's where a person looks back at a time and says, my life was at its best then. And they are struggling with either trying to recreate it in the presence or having a frustration that they can't. And so there's a sense in which they have to let go to move forward. The second is when people have regrets over missed opportunities. It's kind of like the, the opposite of the first. It's saying, oh, if I would have done something different or better or right, my life wouldn't be where it is now. And they believe that they're living a consolation prize life as well. This is the best I can have. And they don't have a full picture of redemption. And the third is the healing from past pain, which can be either or both pain that I've caused or the pain that has been done to me. And there are times people are dragging that along with them as an open wound or a bitterness or a pain in their life that God needs to bring healing to. Mm. You write that our decisions can either break the bonds of the past or perpetuate past failures into ongoing behavior. Explain what you mean by that and where we begin once we've identified, okay, this is where I am. This is where I'd like to go. How do I get from here to there? Yes. I like to picture it from like a, um, 
a chore my mom used to give me as a child, and that was pulling weeds. I would sometimes try to snip those dandelions off at the top and think the job was done, but all it took was a little bit of heat and time, and, and the weed would return. For many people, they'll look at the example or the event that just happened, and they'll try to you know, deal with that in the moment, but they don't go back to the root of where things have come from. And as a result, they tend to be on a repeating cycle. And so one of the keys is that whether it's the glory days, past regret, or past pain, is being willing to kind of dig in, whether through the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, a skilled helper, a pastor, to be able to dig in and say, now, wait a minute, where did this start in my life as a root because this needs to be dug out. I'm tired of the snipping and going back, snipping, returning, and going back. And so by getting to the root, we can experience healing that doesn't just deal with the symptom, but deals with the core issues. Mm. What role does humility play in redeeming our past? Oh, this one's, this one's tough. You know, these tensions of Scripture, it, it tells us that when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, then He will lift us up. Because one of the challenges when we're trying to get our past redeemed is we can fall into the traps of either control, uh, impatience, or trying to force something. And humility is, is basically saying, Lord, I, I will stay in this posture of repentance and renewal as long as I need to and as long as you have me to. A great example is Zacchaeus, who when he comes to Jesus, he says, I'll give half of what I have to the poor, and if I've taken from someone, I'll return it fourfold. Well, Zacchaeus probably couldn't remember everybody he had ripped off. But he basically said to Jesus, I'm in a posture of place that as you bring people across my path, I'm willing to walk that healing journey. And so humility keeps us from being defensive, which could communicate to people that we're really not sorry. Humility is key to showing the core of our heart that we want to walk this journey with God and others. Mm. One of the things we tend to do when we're on a journey is to look to the right and to the left, to look at others, compare ourselves to them. Uh, but you make the point that when we do that, we can um, distort the way that we see our own lives. We're perhaps less honest or, or our, our goal is distorted or we think less than we ought to. How important is it that we not compare ourselves to others? And what do we do if that's a practice that we are in the habit of doing? You know, if we look to others, the, the problem is it's almost like a type of deflection. And so if we see that starting to happen, it, it doesn't mean we don't love others, but we recognize I can only take responsibility for what God has placed before me. I think of Peter when Jesus restored him after his three denials. Right after Jesus restores him in John uh, 21, Peter looks at the apostle John and says, well, Jesus, what about him? And the Lord says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I believe that when we're distracted, it's like the runner who's coming to the tape, but they look to the side to see how the other person's doing. It slows them and it actually robs them of the victory that they were intended to have. And so I think that it's, it's not a self-absorption, but rather it's a focus that says, my eyes have to be on Jesus and the work he's doing in me. Then others will see that through me. If I compare myself to others, we tend to get coveting or jealous or we feel inferior, and all of those are just hurdles in the healing process. 
<laughs> that is so true. I ran for a uh, university of Oregon. And one of the things the coaches always drummed into us was to run straight way through the line, not to look to the right or the left, because you're absolutely right. It will deprive you of those um, absolutely critical seconds as you approach the finish line that mean the difference between victory and defeat. So that's such great, um, great advice. Now I know for you, the church, um, came alongside and supported your journey toward healing. Can you comment a little bit about that? Because I think people have different experiences. What role should we anticipate the church uh, to play? And as those of us who are the church are listening, what should our response be as we're witnessing uh, or participating in the journey of uh, those who are looking to see their past redeemed? There are kind of two categories when it comes to the church that I think are pivotal. One is what I call those those core people who will be part of the redemption process. Think of like with the Apostle Paul, Ananias who came to him right after his conversion, or Barnabas who went to him and believed in him and built him up during his discipleship journey. God will have key Christians who can see past what we did and into the core of who we are, either because maybe they weren't hurt as deeply or God's just given them a tremendous gift of a redemptive heart in how they see others. It's vital for a person to connect with those core people who can help along that journey. As to the crowd, I think if people, they know someone who's who has fallen morally or has failed and committed sin, is that we should never celebrate it. And second, we should avoid cynicism. It's okay to say, I'm disappointed, I'm hurt, um, I feel betrayed. Those are truthful statements. But the recognition is to say that Jesus is more powerful with what they have done wrong in life. There were people who showed grace that were part of the crowd. Now, long term, I didn't necessarily stay in, in deep relationship because I was no longer their pastor. But they did it the right way before, so to speak, that relationship faded as it as it needed to, while others in the core, they walked with me over the course of months and years, and God used them in a pivotal way in my life. We're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My guest is Kevin Goose. Uh, bitterness played a role in your healing process, and it's not altogether uncommon if you are reflecting back on those glory days or regrets over missed opportunities or um, you're healing from past pain that either you inflicted on others or others have inflicted on you. How important is it not to uh, descend into bitterness on this journey toward healing? It is essential. Uh, unfortunately, I learned the hard way. When Paul in his letters talks about how bitterness can cause us to bite and devour one another, uh, Jeremiah the prophet, God even said to him in Jeremiah fifteen nineteen that the precious and the vile had to be separated or sifted. Bitterness is a poison. It, it, it's something that can be vile in our lives, and what it does is it pollutes the precious work of God. And so bitterness focuses on what life isn't that I wish it was or what the other person did or your frustration over what I did. And one of the keys was recognizing that God had to extract that and reinstate in my life and as he does in others' lives, gratitude, thanksgiving, praise. Uh, you know, in the scriptures, whether it's Job or other characters, they teach us that even when life is difficult, we can come to a posture of worship and praise and joy, but bitterness will just pull us down. And for some people, they're concerned, but if I let go of that, the other person will get away with it. Or what if God forgives them? But at the core, bitterness hurts the individual. 
As one pastor, uh, Jimmy Evans, says, forgiveness doesn't make the person right. It just makes me free. We're talking with Kevin Goose. His book is Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. We're going to take a quick break and continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're uh, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Kevin Goose. He is a pastor and author. His latest book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. It is a personal work. He doesn't just write about the subject from a uh, the standpoint of uh, just being theoretical, but this is an experience he has uh, has enjoyed in being reconciled and restored and offers his insight and scripture uh, to uh, those who are in that same position. One of the things you write about is that we oftentimes try to justify our behavior, even when we know it's wrong, and we can uh, really struggle with just admitting that this was wrong. There's no justification for it, although we may have a list of reasons why it happened. Can you talk a little bit about um, having that uh, perspective where you're willing to just admit what's wrong rather than um, uh, trying to justify our behavior? Yes. What happens is with justifying our behavior is that, is that somehow I'm trying to say that someone else's wrongdoing justifies me doing wrong. Or in some cases, I'm looking for a shortcut to a destination or a goal. And so what happens is there's these defenses. So like think of Adam in the garden. He tries to blame God. He tries to blame Eve. Yet the most beautiful example in Scripture is David in Psalm 51, where after confronted with his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and Nathan the prophet comes to him, and we get the psalm that comes out of his brokenness, he starts with saying, Lord, against you and you alone I have sinned. And we went, there was adultery, there was murder, there was deception. But David understood the problem began with his relationship with God, and then it affected everything else. If we're willing to just say, Lord, no excuses, uh, no explanations, I sinned, I was wrong, what it does, it kind of lets our guards down, it breaks down the defenses, and then it opens us up for the healing. Otherwise, we're trying to jockey and play games with God and others when God then has to wait for us to become completely broken and ready for his restoring and forgiving work. Oh, that is so good. But I think we do tend to uh, try to fix the people around us rather than work on ourselves when our own past needs redeeming. I suppose that just is an outgrowth of our sin nature. But the temptation is to deflect attention from ourselves, to blame shift. And even in cases where there is blame to go around, what you've just described is what God is is calling us to is to come honestly before him for the, the role that we have played. Yes, because you know, at the end of the day, I can't take responsibility for what someone else has done. I can only take responsibility for my part. Even if someone doesn't seek forgiveness, and I think they should have, or if someone didn't apologize, and I think they should have, it, it, if we can just get ourselves away from that, we come down to, okay, Lord, before you, I want to have things right. The other is, is that if I put focus on others, I can try to become the teacher while I'm still in the role of the student. In other words, God is still, I would say, simmering things, soaking them through our lives and teaching us, and he wants us to wait until it becomes something in the deep place of us before we share it. I know that God put on my heart two to three years 
before the book was published, the idea of it, but God made it clear, yeah, but I've got to get you far enough down the road, and I've got to do a deeper work in your life before you can really talk about it. And so sometimes we're excited to share what he's teaching, but it's, we have to be the student before we step into the role of trying to offer help to others. You write about uh, what you call rationalized compromise. Can you give us an example of uh, what that is and uh, how we can avoid it? Yes. Yeah, so what happens in rationalized compromise is it may not be my failure, but I see the failures of others, and they're significant enough that I could point the finger and say, ah, they're the reason that I'm not close with God or not close with others. So sometimes it could be the flawed messenger in a situation and where a pastor like myself has to walk through restoration. Maybe it's someone who keys in on scriptures that speak about other people's sins, but neglect the ones that speak to my heart. It's like the phrase, I love what the Bible says to others. I'm just not too fond about what it says about me. It's this sense of rationalized compromise that I look at what's around me, and then what happens is I'm blind to what's going on in me, and I'm like a person driving down the road with no side mirrors or rearview mirror. I'm crashing into others and causing damage and pain, and my blind spots are actually causing as much, if not more, problems in my Mm. sphere of influence. Rationalized compromise is where we say, all right, I may not agree with what that person did, but let's put the side mirrors and the rear view mirror on and let me see things from God's perspective. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, forgiveness. You talked about it earlier in our conversation, but uh, what does forgiveness look like in the context of redeeming your past? Now, that may apply to me as I'm seeking forgiveness um, from God and others I may have hurt. It might be forgiving others who have hurt me. And uh, as you uh, talked about earlier, forgiving myself. What does forgiveness look like and entail when seeking to redeem one's past? The first is, harking back to the earlier statement, is that I have to acknowledge that Jesus is greater than every sin, including the sins committed against me or committed by me. So when Jesus teaches us that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we make a decision that even if our emotions need time or our thoughts are wrestling, that we do not commit, so to speak, a type of idolatry where someone's evil is greater than God's good. Second, as we walk through that forgiveness, we have to learn to walk in the light of his forgiveness of us, even before others are able to forgive and trust us. We must be patient to walk with them, but there's the essence in which our identity has to be solid in God. It's kind of like a phrase a pastor who spoke into my life said. He said, Kevin, you are who God says you are. We have to know who we are in God even as we're walking through the repairing journey with others. And then finally, part of that forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves or forgiving others, it's this recognition that I can't tell somebody when to trust me, but I can choose to be trustworthy. And if it's forgiving another person, it's just saying, God, they may or may not be close in my life moving forward, but I can't let what they've done hold me back. And if it's my sin that needs to be forgiven, it's acknowledging that God has a plan that moves beyond that moment, and he doesn't want that to be the defining chapter of my story. At the end of the book, you um, use a metaphor of uh, how people respond at an accident scene. I found that very intriguing. Can you describe a little bit about that, that section of the book in which uh, you list some of the reactions people have to an accident 
um, and how that relates to this journey toward redemption. Yes, yeah, so picture yourself in a traffic jam on the interstate, and we know where there's an accident up ahead, and as we come up, there's all these different people. The healthy ones are the first responders. The men and women whose job it is is to help remove the accident and then help those who are impacted and injured on the road to healing and restoration. The others are people that we call like the historian, the one that wants to keep reminding you what you've done wrong, or the gossip, the one who just wants to tell others, the one who celebrates that they didn't fail like you did. And so what I described is, is that in the accident scene, not every person we come across in the accident of our lives is from God or is best for our healing. We need to look for those trustworthy people who want God's best for us and recognize there'll be people who come in and out that may want to observe and see the wreckage, but they're not interested in what happens after that. And so the chapter is very much about helping people discern who are the helpful people and who are the others we need to let drive on by. But that's such a great uh, part of the book. I really appreciated that. Again, we're talking about the book, Dry Bones, Redeeming Your Past. My uh, guest is Kevin Goose. Any final uh, advice you'd like to give to those um, who are beginning that journey toward redemption and seeing that their past can, in fact, be put in its proper context when they uh, come to God and seek that, um, that restoration? I would say one, complete surrender to God. Even if we don't know where things are going to go from here, I would encourage them to start with placing everything in his hands and let Jesus Christ be the center of their life. Two, be patient. Sometimes healing is instantaneous, but other times God chooses to work in a journey. It may seem like it'll never end, but to stay patient and don't try to look for shortcuts. And third, even though there may be times where our feelings or our thoughts may point us to past coping mechanisms or past behaviors, we have to recognize that we put those things behind us. We never want to be the one who returns back. God is leading us to the promised land, and there'll come a point where the wilderness must be behind us. And so there's a resolve within them. And then just finally, that even when they're not sure who they are, Read what the Bible says about what God declares over their life, and let those be reminders of who they are and who they can be in Him. Amen. Kevin, thank you so much for talking with us today. I so appreciate you and your book, Dry Bones. Thank you for having me. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's been difficult to ignore the tragedy that's unfolding in Afghanistan. Following the president's decision to fully withdraw U.S. troops, the Taliban fighters have taken over the capital. They're calling the shots, uh, causing the president to flee. Civilians uh, not wanting to live under Taliban rule. They rushed to the airport in Kabul, desperate to make it into or onto one of the last planes leaving the country. And the clock is ticking. Well, it's a disastrous end to the U.S military's 20 years there and for Christians in that country the situation has gone from bad to worse. Well, most Afghan Christians are converts from a Muslim background um, culturally it remains very shameful to leave the Muslim faith family and community members are harsh toward Christian converts making it dangerous to follow Jesus. Christians in the Taliban controlled regions face added pressure to remain entirely unnoticed. 
Persecution has pushed the estimated few thousand Afghan Christians to worship in secret. The U.S. State Department has reported that no church buildings remain in Afghanistan. Now, the interesting thing is, while no church buildings remain there, the church remains in Afghanistan. Well, the scenes coming out of the country are horrific. People are so desperate to flee that they would cling to the exterior of airplanes as they're taking off, with some tragically falling to their deaths. A young woman in tears dreading the Taliban rule says no one cares about us will die slowly in history. Well, being confronted with such tragedies ought to drive us to our knees in prayer. And I know many of us have been praying and will continue to do so, uh, to do so rather. Faced with the worst case scenario, the people in the country need a miracle. Uh, some of the ways that we can pray for Afghanistan in general and for believers in particular, pray that God would protect Afghan Christians and give them wisdom as they decide what to do, where to go as they're being pursued and hunted. Even more than before, Afghan Christians are about to be under immense pressure. Uh, Joshua Yosef, who's the president of Help the Persecuted, he outlined three main possible outcomes. First, some Afghan Christians may succumb to the pressure and return to the Muslim background. Many of them were converted from. Second, Afghan Christians could be forced to pay some sort of penalty if they survive at all. Some people call it a tax, but it's really a penalty to remain a Christian, a dimini um, under Islamic rule. He also says, third, it's possible that Afghan Christians will be hunted down and killed by the Taliban fighters. He says that the concern that a lot of people have, that there will be violence, and we've already seen that. World Magazine reporter Mindy Bells, she stated that she was aware of at least one letter uh, that an Afghan Christian received from the Taliban stating, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. Now, what that means, what that will mean moving forward is yet unclear. Well, such a troubling future for Afghan believers is difficult to fathom. But as the scripture says, we ought to consider them as though we were in their same situation and pray that these Christians would be strengthened in their faith to withstand persecution, to pray that God would meet their practical and physical needs, which has become increasingly difficult, and pray that they would remain hidden from the Taliban. Pray for the safety and preservation of women and girls in Afghanistan. The Taliban, as we know, is notorious for its oppression of women and girls. Fortunately, many young women in Afghanistan today grew up without the abuses of Taliban fighters and life under strict Sharia law. This is a rude awakening. Yet that time has come to an end. The Taliban has returned and Afghan women and girls are rightfully scared. It wasn't that long ago that uh, Malala, you remember her, uh, now a famous human rights advocate, survived an assassination attempt at the hands of the Taliban in Pakistan. In 2012, Taliban fighters tried to kill 15-year-old Malala for asserting her right to simply go to school. She wrote this week in the New York Times op-ed, Afghan girls and young women are once again where I have been in despair over the thought that they might never be allowed to see a classroom or hold a book again. Well, now the Taliban is trying to claim that Afghan women will be happy to be living within our framework of Sharia. But years of repression and violence have proven the Taliban to be far from trustworthy. Under the Taliban's previous control of Afghanistan, women and girls were prevented from being educated, leaving the house without a male guardian and working outside the home with a few exceptions. Pray that women and girls in Afghanistan would be protected and kept safe. Pray that they would find hope for the future and be allowed opportunities to grow and thrive. Pray that this new regime would be more open than the last time the Taliban was in power. And that would, ladies and gentlemen, require 
a miracle. Pray that the Taliban would cease their violence and repression and that evil plans would be thwarted. Jesus instructed his followers to pray for those who persecute you. And while that may be very difficult in Matthew 5:43, that's precisely what we're told to do. Pray that the Taliban would turn from their evil ways and be restrained from committing acts of terror and instituting an oppressive regime. Pray that God would radically change their hearts the way he changed the heart of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26. It was impossible yet. He became the chief apostle. Pray that the world leaders would have the courage and understanding to aid the victims of this humanitarian crisis and make a positive difference, to have wisdom in how to do that. The decision to swiftly withdraw troops without a sufficient contingency plan has unleashed an immense humanitarian disaster. American leaders and those of other Western nations should be developing solutions to help. Pray that they, these leaders can identify practical and meaningful ways to alleviate the suffering of the Afghan people. Pray that the United States would find a way to swiftly facilitate visas for those who worked for the American military and may now face re- repercussions from the Taliban. A visa may be irrelevant in just days. Thousands of U.S. citizens remain trapped in the country without a way to get out. Pray that American leaders would quickly find a solution to allow them to return home safely. And pray for the future of Afghanistan. Again, it seems impossible, and yet we are approaching the throne of grace, the God of the universe, asking for a miracle. As um, precious persons made in the image of God, the people of Afghanistan deserve so much better than the cultural and political turmoil they're currently experiencing. And that will only get worse in the days ahead. Many are already mourning the loss of their dreams. And as I've said before, 70 percent of that population under the age of 25, they have never lived under the full or at least to their recollection. They were five years old and younger. Uh, They've never lived under the rule of the Taliban. Pray that the people of Afghanistan would continue to have hope for the future. Pray that a better future would quickly be realized for them. Pray that they would one day have a strong, stable and free representative government. And again, these are impossible things we are praying for, but we're praying to the God of the impossible. Um, And again, pray for the families of those U.S. troops who uh, the 12 families are the number that we know of, at least at this point, who lost their lives today in the explosions, um, the uh, the bombs that took place earlier in the day, and the some 60 Afghans who lost their lives as well in the melee that took place earlier in the day. Um, again, we, we can't hop on a plane. There's nothing we can do with our hands to serve these people at this point, but we can fall to our knees and ask God to intervene. And what a privilege it is. What a great invitation we've been given uh, to come before him with these and other concerns. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.